You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Mark Beckton on Sunday, September 12, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. So find Colossians chapter 2. While you're finding that, I I just want to open with thank you. For the last uh, two Sundays, you have been gracious in letting me be confessional in a year and a half journey. And uh, your, your kindness has been well received, and I appreciate that. I'm going to ask for your kindness one more Sunday, as this will still be confessional today as a part of that journey, uh, particularly as we look at what the Lord has graced us with in His salvation. Let me put the two Sundays previous together with this one. Two weeks ago, we looked at God's holiness, the beauty of that in our salvation, And when you look at the holiness of God, how completely cut above us He is, the only way we can experience salvation is by what He gives to us, grace. So last Sunday, we just marveled over His grace, the grace from the giver, not just grace as a recipient. Now when we get into today's, we'll be looking at the rest that we receive because God's holiness has been satisfied through His love for us and the grace that He has extended to us through Christ. And we look at this and suddenly we can rest in our salvation because of all that He did. The confessional part, I know what that rest is like. I know how sweet it is. But why? Do I still have those swings? Why can't I keep that sweet rest intact? I'll have moments where I go through teeth-grinding anxiety over changes in circumstances or anger over relationships. All of these things seem to flow back and forth. I can't understand why in the world I can't simply hold and keep that sweet rest. If there's any solace, it's that I'm not the only one. Uh, the church that I served for 18 years, uh, several years into serving, were kind, was kind, loving, and uh, allowed me to have a sabbatical every five years. The last sabbatical I took, members were loving and coming to, to me and saying, how can we pray for you? I simply said, I, I really want to understand what does biblical Sabbath mean? Would you pray for that? It's remarkable how many quickly reacted when you know, will you let us know? It's simply because every one of us know what it's like to, to have that sweet rest in Christ, but to, for it to feel so elusive. So what we're going to be doing today is looking at Old and New Testament, just like we have done the last two Sundays, marveling over the sweetness of our rest in Christ. So that's the reason we start with Colossians chapter 2. I want us to go through it one more time. I want you to see something real quick. Look at verse 16 and then 17. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You really can't have a shadow without a subject. 
What the verse has said is you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the, the festivals, the new moons, you look at the Sabbath. And if you want to trace that shadow, it goes all the way to Christ. And that's what we've seen the last two Sundays. We look at Christ as the shadow casting to the Old Testament of the high priest. We trace it back to being Christ, our high priest of heaven. We go back to the Passover, the Old Testament. The shadow comes from Christ, but we see how because of Christ, our atoning lamb, the wrath of God passes over us. So the subject and the substance is Christ. And the beauty of this stretched shadow is we have our hope in him. And that's true of Sabbath and Sabbath rest. So with that picture in mind, I want you to, to simply know our game plan for the next several minutes. Or as our fifth graders have been told, for the next several long minutes. <laughs> well, as sad as I'll probably live up to that. Uh, there are three prepositions we'll look at. Our rest in, our rest from, and our rest to. All right? So let's start with our rest in. Rest in what? Our rest in God's work. And I go back to my own angst. Why does this rest seem to be so fleeting, fragile? It's like, I know it's unsafe, grabbing mercury. You think you have it and suddenly it's gone. Why is that rest in Christ like that and so I processed in my own life this is where I where I came it's because nothing in my life ever feels finished really I, there's always someone needing something there's always something broken that needs to be fixed there's always a demand there's always a deadline there's always an expectation and all these I'm trying to fulfill so there's always something so I, I, I then project that even on my salvation is there something in my salvation that I have to be working on and forgetting that I need to be rest in what God has finished. Because he says his work in salvation is finished. The, the, the best announcement of this comes in John chapter 19. Where Christ on the cross breathes his last. Before he does, he cries out, it is finished. Let's look at the significance of that by first going to Genesis chapter 2. Take your Bibles and now go to the Old Testament. Genesis, first book, second chapter. Genesis chapter 2. Because I had to deconstruct my own thinking regarding Sabbath rest. In my mind, when I started that sabbatical and started my reading, I thought Sabbath rest simply was God's kindness in giving me permission to take a day off. How kind that he knew my feeble nature and that I would need to have a break. Now, if my Sabbath and the end of the Sabbath was simply to have a 24-hour window from work, and that's all that there was, then I didn't get much rest in that. I'll say honestly, because in my mind, being someone who projects, I already knew what was happening once I finished this 24-hour break. And sometimes in the 24-hour break, it's really not much of a break because I'm still processing what's ahead of me next. The intentionality of the Father in Sabbath rest is for us to rest in our, His finished work in our salvation through Christ. But He started that shadow in creation. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished His work. 
that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the work was finished. God didn't rest because he was tired. There was no more work to be done. Now with that in mind, take your Bibles and go to the New Testament. Find Hebrews chapter 8. While you're finding Hebrews chapter 8, I want you to again tie in with me now. Creation, God is finished. Crucifixion, Jesus saying it is finished. And let's put the timing together. Do you remember the day on which Christ was crucified? It was Friday, the sixth day. Only the Father can put that detail together. He finished creation on the sixth day and rested on the seventh because the work was done on the sixth. On Friday, Christ cries out from the cross, God's work of salvation is finished. And the beauty is, He will rise in three days. In 40 days, He will ascend. And then we are told what He does after the ascension in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. In Christ, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to offer something, something to offer. He offered himself. After offering himself, where is he now? What is he doing? As our high priest, he sits down. Why is that significant? Because in comparison to the high priests of the Old Testament, once... Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was finished. Once they had done everything responsible for that day, they knew that even the next day, they'd have to be at it again the next year and do it again. And the year after that, and the year after that, year after that. In the big picture, they could never sit. In Christ, the beautiful big picture, He sits Because the work of salvation is finished. Furthermore, it's not just finished. It's when a holy God looks at the work of his hand through Christ and says, it is good. More than it is good, it is holy. So take your Bibles again. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Some of you are saying, if you told me that earlier, I would have saved it. But find Genesis chapter 2 again. And this is where it gets confessional. As the Father is working through this in me, I found that I was not resting in His work. The beauty of the completion of salvation and what that means. And here are the reasons why. I have a self-prescribed guilt over sin. I know because God has covered me with Jesus. He sees my sins no more yet. I still struggle to rest because I feel the need to do something to win back his affection. 
He's covered me. He sees Christ on me. But underneath that covering, I still know how I am, who I am as a sinful person. And I still think I have to win back his love. Not acknowledging how amazingly gracious and accepting he is. Seeing me as the beloved. I have another issue. I've got a hero complex. I do want to be the hero of my story. I I want to say that because of my grinding self-discipline and winsome sweet nature. (laughs) I won God over. I turned away his wrath. There's so much in our nature that would do that. We want to be the hero. It's because of our self-discipline to get up, to read scripture, to pray, and to have the lists, and then to do that. Then God will see me and be pleased with me. If I do this long enough and hard enough, I'll even have leverage with God so he can answer my prayers. And I'm not resting in what he has done. So look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Again, with creation, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of heaven and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because God rested on it. God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. He called it holy. So in calling it holy, how does he treat it in the Old Testament? He treated Sabbath in the Old Testament the same way he treated the sacrifices for sin. And if you remember, he, he said that was to be holy. And all the, what the high priest did was to be holy. That's the reason out of his jealousy for his holiness, what did he do with Nadab and Abihu? He struck them with fire. Because they treated his holiness as casual. But now you find that if you disregard how God has set aside the Sabbath as holy, in the Old Testament, you are to be stoned. And it's for the same reason regarding the sacrifice. Again, this is the shadow, long shadow, coming back to Christ. With Nadab and Abihu, if they were distorting what was true about God and His holiness, you would never see it in Christ. And in the Old Testament, if you didn't revere Sabbath rest, you would not treasure the rest that we gain because of Christ. So God is jealous over His holiness, over His Sabbath, and deems it as holy. And I began to take the bridge from Israel of the Old Testament to me in the New Testament and to me today. Simply, I said, like Israel, uh, likewise, if Israel ignored resting in God's power and finished work in creation, if they instead kept working, and here's where I put myself into there because it's our sinful nature, if they kept working to get ahead of the competition or to complete what needed to be finished so they were applauded and praised for being responsible. They were not resting in who God is and all He did and promised. Life was all about their glory and not God's. That hurt. Worse, they would be distorting the shadow God purposed that our true rest and salvation would be secured by Jesus' finished work. 
And if I don't rest in that, I don't breathe. Take your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 31. In this sabbatic and in looking at these passages and then seeing how they bridge to salvation, this passage we're about to read uh, gave me tremors on the inside because it seemed to be saying contrary to what I had seen earlier and I didn't, didn't see that. So let me just show this to you in Exodus chapter 31 verses 14 through 17. It says, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore... The people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is not only a shadow, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was, and here became the tremor. He was refreshed. And so now I'm wondering, well, then did I see it wrong? Was he tired after six days in creation? And therefore, after the laboring work needed to be refreshed, I, that messed with me. So I had to get out my dictionaries and found out this Hebrew word for refreshed literally means to breathe. It goes all the way back to when God breathed into Adam the breath of life and became for all of us that breath of life. That's the reason anytime somebody dies in the Old Testament, it says, and he gave... And he gave his last breath. He breathed his last. No more life in him. And knowing that God looked at all he finished in creation and called it very good, I realized he's not tired. He's breathing with life. Satisfied over the work of his hand. Calling it very good. And breathes. Can you imagine when Christ is crucified and the Father looks at what has taken place? Knowing his resurrection, ascension, seeing him sit at the right hand, and knowing this is very good. And for you and me, that's the beauty of Sabbath rest. It's too often it's about trying just to recuperate from all that's drained us in the week before so we have enough step in us for the next week ahead. And, and there's truth to that, but not to the deepest truth of being able to step back as one that the Father has adopted, made his own, covered with his grace. And the Father looks on you and what he has done and sees you and says, that's very good. Do you see that? Can you see that? And when you and I see it, then we find ourselves just in awe, worshiping and breathing on what he has done. And suddenly we breathe until we go back to our default. My default is to still try to earn God's favor. Uh, it's, it's in our fallen nature. And that's the reason we need the second preposition. We're talking about God resting in God's work. The first preposition. This one is now we need to learn how to rest from unnecessary work on our behalf. 
So let's talk about that. Uh, Take your Bibles and find Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. To be able to learn how to rest from our unnecessary work, it it goes to this passage. And it's actually Mark chapter 2 verse 23 through Mark chapter 3 verse 6. It's two encounters uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus over Sabbath. And there are conflicting views from the two regarding Sabbath. There are conflicting reactions from the two on Sabbath. And before you start defaulting, thinking, yeah, it's those Pharisees. I'm glad I'm not one. Uh, It's our default to go there, all of us. So, and I'll show you that uh, even in in my own life. So let's look at the two examples. Uh, One of them is when the disciples are rubbing the wheat and trying to get something to eat from the wheat. Because the Pharisees have called that unlawful, they're they're saying that you have sinned because you're working. Or Christ is about to heal somebody with a withered hand. And they said, you can't do that. That's working, even though Christ says, but you pull your ox out of a ditch. I can't heal this guy. So they have different views. Where do the difference of views come from? There's a 400-year window between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In that 400-year window, there, is, there, are, there are a group who look back over the history, and they can read the Old Testament scrolls and see the history of God's people compromising, rebelling, and then from rebellion, the Father confronting, and then them having a restored relationship. This cycle happens throughout. And all of their hardships come when the compromise takes place and then the rebelling. So about a hundred years before Christ's birth, there was a group who had the desire, let's at least protect ourselves and our people from taking those initial steps of compromise. Let's set up some, some, some guardrails further out so they don't get to this place of sinning. And this group called themselves the Pharisees. And Pharisees literally means separate ones. And, and it really wasn't a desire to, to boast in themselves at that moment. It was mainly a desire to separate ourselves unto God and, and model a life this way so that other people would see that model and we as the people of Israel would, would no longer go through these cycles. It all started so nobly. But over time, the very things they did in setting up deeper guardrails became equal in weight in their mind to what God had said in his word. Furthermore, one of the things that happened is they became measurables. Everything the Pharisees put out for us to do was also so that we could hold each other accountable. But if you go to the core of our sinful nature, it's actually so that I can show that I am more righteous than you. And that's where it led to in this conversation. So now we get to Mark chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and there's going to be two completely different reactions to what's happening here regarding Sabbath. And he, Jesus, looked around at them, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man who has the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Christ how to destroy him. Two different reactions. Christ is grieved 
and he is angry. Many times those go together. But the reason he is grieved and angry is they have begun to establish their own sense of righteousness among each other instead of being able to rest in who he is and what the Father has deemed righteous. However, they react to Christ wanting to put him out, wanting to kill him because he's threatening their long-term measurables of righteousness. And... This is where I now uh, step into becoming an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) Because I see it in my life, and I've seen it in the life of the church that I've had the love to be a part of, um, Church of Christ, that I've served four different churches. It's part of our nature. Let me just share with you some examples where I've seen this, where we're still working for our identity uh, between each other. Um, I've heard so many people through the years come up to me and say, Pastor, I just want you to know, every time the doors are open, I'm going to be there. Subtext, I am more faithful than the others. I had a, a deacon who loved explaining the gospel to people. And we were at the church one night. He was about to go out. Other men were coming in for a Bible study. And he looked at me and said, you know, I'm going into battle. They're just coming in here for maneuvers. Measurables. Through my years as a pastor, I have seen that these measurables that we set up in our own mind often are divisive because it helps us elevate ourselves. And let me just give you a short list from about 40 years. And again, it's short. I've heard it, I'm closer to God than others because I worship with hymns. Or the opposite will say, I'm closer to God than others because my worship is richer with new music. I'm closer to God than others because I'm real in my faith. That's why I don't wear a suit. For I have had folks say, I honor God with my best. That's why I wear a suit. The best way to disciple is through Sunday school. No, true growth happens one-on-one in small groups. I'm passionate about reaching my Jerusalem, my city. We should all be more passionate about taking the gospel to the nations. Essence, we have established our own sense of righteousness for comparison. And we as pastors are not any different. Again, being a pastor for nearly 40 years, I know what it's like to compare the size of my church to other churches. And to see what's happening in other churches and wondering why can't my church do that. And then fearing that everybody else in the church is comparing our church to the other churches, wondering why can't our church do that. And they'll look at me as being a bad pastor, a bad leader, a bad teacher. And then I'll pass on that guilt that I'm feeling on the inside because of comparison to other people on the outside and our established measurables of righteousness. And I'll pass on that tension to them saying, you should give more, you should evangelize more, you should attend more. And all we're doing is working on our appearance to each other with measurables that we've created for ourselves like the Pharisees. 
And the beauty of God's goodness to us is he takes the comparison from each other away and says the only one you truly compare to is Christ. And that is your Sabbath reminder. Take your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want you to look at verse 15. God knew working for our righteousness would be a reoccurring problem for us. And that's another reason why he instituted the Sabbath. You find this in verse 15, Deuteronomy 5, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. As Robert has beautifully already reminded us, this is the second generation from Egypt. They're still in the wandering phase, but they've got to be tutored. And what is he telling them? Do you remember where I have brought you from? The purpose for the Sabbath is to reflect back on your condition prior to my deliverance of you as slaves in Egypt. That was your identity there. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about us formerly being slaves of sin. That was our master. But by the deliverance of Christ, we are slaves of a good master. And that's why we stop to reflect and rest on salvation from Christ. When I did the sabbatical, when I came back from it, my hope was to take all the reading I had done. And my feeling is if you can condense it into a single sentence, then you can own it. And so I I did that regarding biblical Sabbath. And this is what I put down. Biblical Sabbath involves stopping for a needed regular reminder of the rest we have in Jesus. Regular because that's how often I need it and the Father knew it. And what's remarkable is, as much as my mind flows back to things that create unrest, focusing on who I am, who the Father is, all that He has done, what His nature is like, and how I'm seen by Him now, generates that rest. And what happens is rest and worship usually go hand in hand. Just like grieving and anger. Rest and worship, which leads us to the third and final preposition. We're talking about resting to worship. Take your Bibles, if you would, and be prepared. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 58. Find Isaiah 58. I took several books with me during that at sabbatical. One of them was by a medical doctor named Matthew Sleeth. The title of the book was 24-6. You get the idea. This is what he wrote. He said, For many years my wife, Nancy, taught English. On the first day of class, she asked students to write an essay. She wanted to assess their writing skills and get to know them better. One semester, she showed me an essay from Clinton. Clinton's essay was three pages long. It did not contain a single comma, semicolon, period, or paragraph indention. What tickles me is every time I read that, it's the educators that begin to chuckle. 
It was one long run-on sentence. Now listen. Sleeth writes, God did not intend our lives to be like Clinton's paper. A continuous run-on sentence. Musicians say that it's not the notes, but the pauses of the notes. Between the notes that make music. To add meaning to our lives, God gave us the punctuation mark of the Sabbath. To reset our eyes on the sweetness of what He's done. So that means we first, if we're going to worship, have to stop. And that's what God prescribed in the Old Testament. He did prescribe the weekly stopping of the Sabbath. But He also prescribed three times a year of of the whole of God's people stopping together. And it was at Passover, at Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So three times a year, all the people were to come to Jerusalem. When they came to Jerusalem, they would come from different directions, but all directions would still have to come upward. 3,000 foot elevation. When they did, as they approached, they're stopping, they're disconnecting from life, and they're also refocusing on God. And as they do so, they are singing or they are quoting to each other Psalms 120 through Psalms 134, the Psalms of Ascent, who the Father is. But when they get to the Temple Mount, they will climb up the steps. And, and I've been able to see the preserved portion of these steps. They are intentionally at different depths. I'm getting older now, and I'm actually watching my feet go down steps where I used to not to. Because I don't want to fall. It was just mindless. You and I will do that going up or going down. We just do it because everything is the same, but not going to the Temple Mount. Every step had a different depth to make you stop. Focus on your steps, but also whom you're about to approach. And in doing so, this was to bring you to a place of worship and rest and joy. That's what you find in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. It says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath... And and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, and the Lord holy, the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. I read this from the New International Version translation. And that's the reason we seek true Sabbath. To return to that wonderful sense of awe and worship and joy. And this is why we need it. Again, this becomes confessional. I have lived with you in these days, and we think these days have been hard. And granted, they have been. These are not the only days that have been hard in our lifetime. They will all be hard because we live in a fallen world. And sometimes we forget how that affects us and how that moves us to unrest. I have a friend who is serving the Father in a particular region of Massachusetts. 
he recently told me, he said, you, you know, that in my region, uh, they would consider this area a region of an unengaged people group. Because here in Massachusetts, where I serve, less than 2% are followers of Christ. We forget that even in our own country, as well as our world, that as followers of Christ, we are the stark majority. And yet we live among a people in a fallen world, and by a fallen world that is led by the father of all lies, has sown lies into a fallen world, and yet it's this fallen world that's trying to tell us, as followers of Christ, what is truly good and moral. And as you and I try to live what is good and moral in a fallen world by the definitions of good and morality by a fallen world, we just want to be seen that way, so we work hard, and yet the, the, the picture of good and moral keeps shifting because there is no sense of grounding of what is good and moral from Scripture. It's basically by consensus of the moment. And yet if we want our appearance to be seen that way by others, instead of resting that we are accepted and already seen as good because of Christ, we will carry a weight that's unnecessary. Furthermore, we will carry expectations that are wrong. Expectations that I've heard over the years sown by unbelievers about Christians or un immature believers to Christians. Here's just a brief three. Wrong expectation. If you are good, God will protect you. Did any of you hear how the apostles ended life? If you are obedient, God will lavishly provide for you. Yet watch Elijah. He has to be fed by the ravens. And at one point, he goes to a widow's house who feeds him and she knows that her and her son are about to, die, about to starve. If you pray and ask God's wisdom, all your decisions will be easy and applauded. And Jesus, who embodied divine wisdom, was on a cross with a handful, very small handful, still weeping for him, with everybody else in a fallen world jeering at him. And yet if we hold that as our expectations... No wonder we will be in unrest. Also, we have to deal with the whispers from Satan himself. I talked about creation. I never took you to Genesis 3 with what happened in the fall. It began with the whispering of lies to Eve. You remember this one? Did God actually say, you shall not eat the tree of the garden? All right, here are the lies that as I began to work through this in that 18-month period. But I started reflecting back on the ones that had created a lot of unrest in me. And I have a feeling it may connect with you. He will whisper to me, Your children don't like spiritual things, do they? You've prayed a long time, but nothing's changed, has it? This is not what you expected from God, is it? Others are probably saying about you, well, they're not as godly as we thought. You've lost your job. You're on financial fumes. Your plans for the future are gone. How do you feel about that? You're not praying. You're not reading Scripture. You're not serving the church like you once did. Therefore, with all this in mind, you must be a failure. You're not as beloved by God as you once were. 
You need to do something to earn back his love. And there I start all over again. And it wasn't until I stopped and rehearsed what was true about God and who I am in Him through Jesus that I began discarding the layers of lies tightly wrapped around me. There were times I needed to stop longer and rehearse what's true repeatedly before I truly experienced rest. But when I did, it came. I rested. I breathed again. And I worshipped. So let's talk about worship. Take your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 20. This is our last piece. I've got two passages to share and then we'll be finished. What's hard to fathom is that how the Father knew we would be struggling with unrest in the rest He provided. And yet will even purpose circumstances that stimulate the unrest in order to sanctify us in the rest we are to have in Him. So look at this at Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. God is saying, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. These Sabbaths I have ordained so that they will rehearse in their mind again that I have set them apart as holy. That's what sanctify means. Unto me. But also, if you take this to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where it says, God foreknew us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is also His ongoing work of sanctifying us to be like the one who's covered us. And it's in those moments that it was hard. Because I realized the Father purposed that stillness for a sanctifying time to reveal what my idols had been and the false places where I had placed my trust. Which is why I bring you now to Matthew chapter 11. One more time to the New Testament. First gospel, Matthew chapter 11. It's verses 28 and 30. If you look at the chapter there and the one before, Christ is still dealing with Pharisees. And he gives a sweet comparison here. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light, at least compared to the righteousness of the Pharisees. And if you understand the beauty of the yoke, that means you are partnered with, you are teamed with. And in one of those times where the Father had purposed stillness so I could evaluate why am I so teeth-grindingly unrested, it began to show the following. Mark, you have yoked yourself to and are trusting your financial plans for a stress-free retirement. You are yoked to and trusting your job and benefits for financial security. You are yoked to and trusting your ability to control your future through good planning and hard work. You are yoked to and trusting your denomination and other theologians to carry the load for you spiritually. 
You exercise and eat eating habits. You trust them, yoke to them to keep you healthy. You yoke to and trust your children and parents to fulfill your picture of always being together. You yoke to and trust your willingness to read the latest study or book on whatever you need. And you yoke yourself to and trust your experience, reputation, and relationships to secure your next job. Therefore, you don't rest. Because I'm trusting being yoked with something else other than Christ. And yet when I stop and think to whom I'm yoked to and know that even in the team of oxen there's always a lead. (laughs) That I am teamed with Christ who is the lead. And he is the one who has covered me, sustains me, causes the Father to beloved me. And he is the one who has ordained my days and my steps. He is the one who is my refuge and my strength, my ever-present help in time of trouble. He is my joy. And I am teamed with him. And nothing can change that. Then I go from stressing to breathing again. And in breathing I go to worshiping again. Out of the delight of stopping. Resting. In being yoked with Christ. If anything let me end with this. I did have a conflict. Because when I looked at the Old Testament. And saw the practices. I knew that the Father also knew that in my life I have a physical rhythm that I do need to stop and rest or my body will not restore. I also know the Father knows that every stress in life will cause my body to shut down. So He purposes rest. Not just so that I stop from all the stuff. It's so that I stop and focus on all that He's done. So with what we said with Colossians chapter 2, you understand Christ is the substance. Sabbath was the shadow. When it comes to the Old Testament, if I don't take a day this week and suddenly have that day of rest, is that a sin that I have not done that? The answer is no. I can tell you from life experience and the purpose of Sabbath rest and focusing our life on the Father and His goodness, if I don't have those days, in time, over time, my mind, my heart, my will will lead me to sin. Because I am not regularly focusing on who the Father is, what He has done, who I am in Him, and how sweet that is. And the sweetness is if I put that regularly in my life, I find that in those high intense days where I feel like I can't breathe because of all that's being asked, suddenly there's a 15-minute window when I can reflect like I did a few days ago and find myself getting the rhythmic breathing again because of resting in Christ. The beauty of the Father, His holiness, His grace, His rest. He knows us so well. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your kindness. Praise You that You are all-knowing. You are loving, or You would not have put this in Your Word for us to see and know and be reminded again and again. Father, I'm asking that you would take what is true that has been said today and let that seed soak in good soil. I pray, Father, you will bring it to mind at right times. 
I pray that you will sanctify us, Father, as we work to rest in you instead of stress over everything else. Father, in these next moments, I pray that our breathing would enable us to worship, particularly as we remember the sweetness of your sacrifice for us and what that means. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Mark Beckton at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.